0: What follows is the talk that Ben Colson gave at the Vineyard Hotel, 26th of October 2016. The talk has a slight industry focus, but can be enjoyed by all people who love coffee. There is some swearing in the talk, and that is why I've age-restricted the podcast. Thank you, enjoy.
1: Yesterday, so the good news is uh, I'm not going to bore you with the exact same thoughts. The bad news is there's going to be a little bit of an overlap, and mainly just because today we're going to do uh, a couple of things. And first off, I think it's important to understand the background of where we've come from, so that we know where we're going, not just as Long Miles Coffee, but also as uh, the coffee industry and as coffee roasters. So I thought before I get started, I was just like, who in here is a is a coffee roaster or works with coffee roaster? So, okay. So that, that just helps out. And then others here are just, you love your coffee, which is why you're here. That's why I'm here, because I love my coffee. So I want to start off with, to tell you a little bit about kind of the start of Long Miles Coffee, kind of where we came from. And we're going to do this, I'm going to do this in a way that... Um, essentially just shows you tells you why we do what we do because we're not doing things necessarily the same as any other coffee farmer in Africa or in the world although there's a lot of overlap because I think everything that we do in the coffee industry is borrowed shared or changed or innovated based on what somebody else has already done so that's what I would say uh, Long Last is about we've taken a look at everything I've seen in coffee, and we're trying to do it at the best we can and innovate it so that in the context of Burundi, where we are, we can make it even better. So that's the backdrop, and I'm going to just have this, uh, the image is kind of just playing on a, on, a, on a reel here, and then at the end we're going to have some conversations, and I might refer back to a couple of the images, because there's a few of the images that specifically speak to our discussion at the end. So after we have a After I give you the backdrop of Long Miles, what I really want to do, and this, for those of you who are are just passionate about coffee and love your coffee, at the end of our time today, what we're going to do is we're going to have, it's going to be more of a discussion than a monologue. My wife is not here this morning, but she says that I'm really good at monologuing for hours on coffee. (laughs) She tends to get bored of my coffee talk. I never get bored of talking about coffee, so I'm going to try to limit that and then we're gonna so that we can actually have some more questions but as well as discussions because I am here to tell you my story but I want an insight into why I'm here as well is I'm selfishly I just want to hear as roasters what are you looking for? Like what what's driving you? What is your what does your customers want? Because then as us as producers and farmers we're gonna be able to work closer and better with you. Alright so that's that's my inside little scoop of why I'm here as well. So I want to hear from you. And also because we're here at the Vineyard because they've allowed us to partner with them. And they're using and they're displaying a cup of excellence coffee, which is one of our award-winning coffees. And really at the end of the talk, we'll talk about how we partner with people. And how I believe direct trade should look like, or at least in our context. And how that works with people like the Vineyard and other roasters around the world. So we'll get to that and I'm just gonna let this play and I will take credit for none of the photos. It's all Christine, actually. She's she's the photographer. I just drink coffee. So, backdrop to Long Miles Coffee. We my wife and I moved from the United States to Durban in 2001. And as many of you know, in not just Durban, but in South Africa as a whole, there was I would I would have As I moved in, I I looked at South Africa as kind of a desert for good coffee. And forgive me if you, uh, I don't know, David, if you were already roasting coffee at the time, but Durban surely didn't have any good coffee, at least not that I knew of. So we were living in Durban, and over the course of the ten years that we lived in Durban, slowly I started just trying to figure out, I came from a roasting background in the United States, For a micro roaster, and just was surprised at how little good coffee there was in in South Africa. And the reason I'm telling you this is this is what launched us into long miles coffee. I think each of us have a dream, and each of us have something inside that kind of stirs within us and says, I want to run the Two Oceans Marathon, I want to be a comrades' runner, I want to climb Kilimanjaro, I want to start my own business. I don't know how many friends of mine have said, Dan, I just want to open a coffee shop. But of those friends that have said, I want to open a coffee shop, I think there's a, uh, out of probably the two dozen that have told me I'm going to open a coffee shop one day, I think two out of the two dozen have actually done it. Why? Why is that? I don't have that answer, but I can tell you where the story of Christy and I, where we came from. So we, going through 10 years in South Africa, Started doing as much as I could, figuring out what the coffee industry was like, helping some roasters, bring in some green beans, doing some barista training, getting my Q grade certificate. Which is for those of you who aren't coffee professionals, it's it's essentially I get to slurp coffee and tell you what it tastes like, and you should you should believe me because I got the certificate. Um, so it's a it's a fancy certificate that says I can drink coffee and give you flavors and scores. So. After this, I had an opportunity to go to Burundi. Burundi was a newly privatized coffee sector, and there was an international coffee trader that was helping cooperatives launch into this thing called specialty coffee. And if you're from Burundi, all you ever know about coffee is that this is, this is just a commodity that actually is a cherry. And I grow these cherries, I pick them off a tree, and I sell them, and for some crazy reason, people around the world buy our cherries. Uh, they don't even taste good. You know, this, is, this is the farmer's perspective in brewing. So when they get any money for these, cher- these cherries, they're just blown away. Like, this is great. Now, that means you're competing with cassava or maniac, I don't know what you would call it here, but like essentially a root With no yams, with no, no nutritional value, but it's a filler or bananas, which you can make into beer, which tastes like fermented off grapefruit juice, Um, but very powerful. Um, Or you can can grow, in some parts of the country, some rice or some wheat and some other crops. Essentially, we're talking about subsistence farming. So when I came to Burundi for the first time in 2010, all I saw was a country full of farmers, because the, the country is over 90%, and they are living literally day to day. What they pull out of the ground, they will eat that day. Sometimes they can pull out potatoes for the week, but there's no refrigeration. They don't, the, the, the crops, or whatever they can manage to store. They are eating what they pull out of the ground. If the ground does not give them food, they cannot eat. I saw farmers that are, that are eating one meal a day at 4 o'clock. That's it. Kids go to school, they come back. There's no breakfast, there's no lunch, there's a 4 o'clock meal. That's it. And usually it's these, this cassava paste made into like a bread. Maybe if they get a little like lenga, which is like a, almost like a, uh, like a spinach on top of it, that's as good as it gets. No salt, no oil, nothing. So you're talking about what the World Bank has now made. They always make the listings, which are somewhat debatable, but debatable or not, Burundi ranks as the poorest country in the world. Burundi now ranks as one of the the bottom three most corrupt countries in the world, and it ranks as this is a new, this is a new ranking, is the, the most miserable country <laughs> in the world. So this is the Burundi I walk into in 2010. And all I've known is I want to do something in coffee. My wife had started a coffee shop in Durban called Urban Grounds. And she was doing coffee and we realized really early that I loved coming into her coffee shop and she hated running coffee shops. So if you run coffee shops, you will understand what you know the, the downside of it. And you understand the, the upside is like I might have an amazing cup of coffee in Durban. But, so what I knew was I wanted to do something in coffee. What I didn't know was what that would look like. Christy knew that she wanted to jump fully into photography, but she didn't really know how that was gonna look in Durban. So we had this dream, this dream of being. Uh, I had this dream of doing something in coffee. wasn't didn't really want to run a ca- cafe. Really didn't have the patience to become a roaster or the just the, the, the stick to itiveness like some of you guys do. I just, but I wanted to do something in coffee. So what do you do? So I get a chance to go to Burundi and I do this uh, consulting job, and go to the washing station, and see how they see how they're operating the washing station. Go to the cupping lab, and we cup through all these. I had I had earlier in the year had them separate out weekly lots, and so I'm cupping out, and I'm like blown away. Here is quite possibly the best coffee that I've ever tasted before. One, it's fresh, so it's going to be really good. But the second thing was is that this is 100% bourbon coffee, which to me is the epitome of what you want in a coffee. And now that's a debate we're not going to have today. you we'll have to just take my word for it. So it's the best coffee in the world. It's a poor wine. So, but that is, so I'm tasting this coffee and I'm thinking, this is amazing. And then I, then I go back to the washing station and I look again at it and all you see at this washing station is the most rudimentary, um, non-systematic, dirty way you could ever imagine a product to be made. And I, and I took a drink of coffee, looked at this station, and I thought, what potential? And immediately, I said, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to introduce Burundi coffee to the world. And it's going to be the most amazing thing ever. So naively, I went back to South Africa. I said, Christy, this is it. We're, we're moving to Burundi. This is what I want to do with my life and christy said how about 2 years? I agree. That was in 2010. It's 2016 now and we're still there just as a uh, understanding where we've gone. But we we packed up a Land Cruiser threw everything on there and I drove solo from Durban to Burundi. On the way I'm we're emailing all the coffee importers around the world that I know saying, "Hey, I'm moving to Burundi and I'm going to source you the best coffee." In Burundi and microlo for you, naively. I think if you're in the coffee industry, you know if you get some email from some guy from America, South Africa, moving to Burundi, saying he's going to give you the best coffee, you could probably delete that email. It's probably very safe to do. Huh. But luckily, the company that sent me there to to do the consulting said we're looking for someone to go to Burundi. So we so they give me a consulting job, and for two years, what I do is. I go to the 186 washing stations, taking samples, looking at their processing and cupping coffee. Through that process, I find out that there is a triangle of land area in Burundi that is producing what I consider to be like the epitome of good coffee. And I realize that that's where we have to focus. That's where all the good coffee is going to come from. After two years, another couple of things I realized. One, Chris and I come from a background where we are trying to really... We don't want to just make money. We don't want to just do our passions, but we also want to make a difference in the world. We had been working with a Christian NGO in Durban, and so we feel like making an impact in in the lives of these students that were coming from rural South Africa. This was this is what we were about. Just moving to Burundi wasn't changing our heart. So we said, okay, we move to Burundi. We have to impact farmers' lives. We have to make their life better. Because so we're seeing these subsistence farmers that are just barely surviving. It's one drought, and we're going to have massive death. So we're going to go in there, we're going to change these lives, we're going to find great coffee, we're going to put Bruni on the map. So already our expectation levels are just climbing. One of the the importers in the U.S. that I was working with literally laughed at me. I said, you will not do any of that. And I was offended and I was on my righteous high horse and I said, well, we'll just see about that. Two years in, I was doing none of that. I was doing everything that I could to get farmers better Better, better money for their coffee, increase their livelihoods, and micro and show the world these amazing specialty lots. And out of all of that, what I did was I managed to get a select few roasters in the United States, amazing coffee. Their premium that we, they paid really didn't filter down to the farmers at all. Zero. The agronomy in the agricultural sustainability of the coffee crop Actually, year on year, it was getting worse, and I could see that with my own eyes, and I'm not an agronomist, So essentially, everything I was doing was propping up a system that you in the coffee industry are helping to propagate. I mean, I hate to call you out on it, but I was a part of it, I think you, in one way or another, are a part of it as well. Every time you drink a cup of commodity coffee, I can guarantee you that the farmer's price point he's getting for that coffee is helping to not only keep him in poverty, but is probably pushing him further into poverty. So, I mean, I don't want to call it any specific brands like the kind that you get in the capsule and put in the machine it's so easy. I can guarantee you, I talked to some of those companies that shall not be named, and the price point that I could get for Long Miles Coffee would not only force me to leave Burundi, but it would force my farmers to pull up all of their coffee trees and plant the nutritionless cassava because they would have a better life. Just think about that the next time you push the button. That's all asking. So, if you're okay with that, and if your ethics agree with that, then go ahead and keep drinking it. Uh, that's, that, no, no more than. that. I'll put that aside. That's where, um, But I know that the coffee roasters in this room would probably most likely agree. You can disagree with me at the end of the conversation. So, I'm seeing in two years... The fact that we, the very vision, the very passionate reason that we're going to Burundi to change lives is not happening. So two years in, uh, Christy says that we got to leave. Let's go back to South Africa. And I was just like, what am I going to do in South Africa? I can't be a roaster. I can't be a. I can't run a coffee shop. But can't. Nobody's buying. Nobody's hiring green buyers in South Africa these days. It's just that's that's a, an American thing or a European thing at this point. Like, so we said. Actually, we could stay and make a difference because we know what it would take. It would take building a washing station and working with the community. So, but that means that our two-year plan is now out the window, and that means a long-term investment of ourselves into Britain. So we, it, I mean, it was. You would think that that would be a long, drawn-out, looking at pros and cons and spreadsheets, but it was literally more our drive through the free state, and it was like, yeah. Let's do this. So I called uh, the importer that I was working with, or the trader I was working with, saying, we're starting a washing station. They said, good luck. Okay, so that <laughs> door's closed. And then we said, well, let's do it. So we got back to Burundi, found a hill. I told you there's a triangle of the best area in Burundi for the best coffee. So we knew where to look. I, I had this unfair advantage. i have been working for two years with the best coffee roasters in the world. I knew what they wanted in coffee. At another unfair advantage, where I knew the best coffee, where the best coffee in Burundi is. At another unfair advantage, I've been listening to the farmers. I, I wasn't satisfied with going to a washing station. I we were going, I was going with a guy that had hired us up, essentially a fixer. And We just go and like, crash these hills and like find the chief and talk to the community. We're like, what do you need? What's going on? Why is this not working? And and so we knew the hearts of the farmers, what they needed and what they didn't need. So we took that knowledge, put it together, bought a hill, stripped out the eucalyptus. I told you, if you were here yesterday, the the story that is stripped out the eucalyptus and a natural spring started flowing out the bottom of the hill. So now we are also the bringers of water to Burundi in the locals' eyes. No matter how many times I tell them, it's just removing eucalyptus will give you water, but it's another story. So we built this washing station in 2013. Started, found land in January, built, started building in February. April started to produce coffee. The local community couldn't believe it, it was just, nothing happens in Burby that quick. It just doesn't happen. The local government really didn't know what to do with this crazy Mazungu who was investing money. We'd taken our, the money, we had, we had um, sold our house in Durban. Chrissy had made a blog post saying, hey, anybody want to help us build the station? Put the two of that together, built this washing station. And I think as any of you who are entrepreneurs or have started something, jumped in full-on without really knowing what we were getting ourselves into. The reality is, five years, or not five years, now it's three years, four coffee seasons later, if I can go back to that time knowing what I've gone through, I don't know if I would do it again, quite honestly. Hardest five and a half years of my life is burned. Most rewarding five and a half years of my life is Burundi. Most passionate five and a half years is Burundi. The most excruciating, painful, literally breaking out in hives, curled up in my bed, can't sleep, and I don't know if I can get out of bed moments, are Burundi. And I think that a lot of you could say that as starting business, you can relate to some of those things. Thinking about you've hired a hundred-day labor, they've worked for a month, and you have absolutely no idea how you're going to pay for them because you don't get paid for coffee until it's shipped, and we're not shipping coffee for another two months. What do you do? So these are some of the challenges that we are facing in this first year. But let me tell you some of the highlights because there's we, the story is peppered with frustration and delays and government controls coming in and trying to stop us. But here's the here's oh, today I want to focus on what the potential was that we saw, and how we realized that. Because the tagline of, and really what we stand for in Long Coffee, is coffee, people, potential. So we knew the coffee was amazing. We knew the people were working hard and could do it. And we knew the potential was there. But how do you realize potential? And really, as an entrepreneur, as a coffee professional, that's what you're doing. You're looking at the potential of green bean, if you're a roaster, You're saying, how can I bring out the potential in this bean, which I know can be blackberry jam and rich, thick, creamy body with high citric notes on the finish. You know that's possible. How do you do it? And that's the challenge. As a roaster, that's your challenge. How do you bring that out? As a coffee producer, the challenge is, I know this bourbon coffee, and all of our coffee is growing from 1,800 to 2,200 meters above sea level, It's got a microclimate coming from the Kibiru Rainforest, so we've got this constant cloud cover and just moist, beautiful atmosphere, volcanic soil. Conditions are perfect for coffee. And that first year, we were scoring 84, 85 points at best in our lots. So the result is, we saw the potential and we weren't realizing it. What we did find that first year was some roaster partners that said, we believe in direct trade, we believe in what you're doing, we believe in your vision, we believe in changing community, and that's what Long Last is about. And so as a direct trade roaster, what some of these key individuals, essentially they're individuals around the world, said, we'll partner with you, we believe in you, we're going to buy this coffee, even though we only ever sell 86 plus coffee, we're buying your 84 scoring coffee. We're going to put it on our shelf, and we're going to believe that it's going to get better. This is the backdrop of what I believe direct trade is. It's about relationships and growing together. They gave us input and knowledge from what they've seen in other countries. They bought our coffee so that we could turn around and not only pay the farmers and our labor, but then we were able to, for the first time in the country, give farmers a premium. It was just a mind-blowing experience for farmers. We paid and then paid a second time we ended up paying over 50% more for our coffee than any other washing station in the country. That meant that the first year, we we literally produced 80 bags of coffee with 450 families. The next year, we had 1,500 families. The next year, 2015, we had 2,500 families. And in 2016, we had 4,500 families, and we're producing over six containers of coffee. How did we grow from 80 bags and 400 families to what's just the 4,500 families, which is 25,000 people, and six-plus containers of coffee? We did that by having a dream and a vision, not, not a solid business plan that I would guess guessed anyone would invest in. Not a strong economic and government sector that promoted uh, growth and opportunity. But it was really all about a dream. About a dream that we wanted to do our have live as a coffee... I wanted to be a coffee guy. Chris wanted to be a photographer. We wanted to impact lives, and so we jumped in. And then we took the risks with it, and we just started sinking in risk, and then we pulled ourselves out. Sinking again, 2015. Every year we, we said that there is... No way, things can get worse than the year before. That, you should never say that. 20, uh, 2011 and 2012, working for an international a trader, I was like, how can it be worse than this? And like, Phone calls from, from Switzerland are tough to take when they, they expect timelines, and you're like, but this is Africa. I, I sent the coffee to the mill, I'm literally at the mill, and there's just no electricity. Why isn't it on the truck? haven't even milled it. Why aren't you milling it? There's no electricity. Why is there no electricity? That is a good question. (laughs) When you don't live in Central Africa, it's really hard to understand that there's just no electricity. When the truck gets stopped at the border and they just won't let it out, even though you have all the documentations, it takes 29 signatures and stamps for a single bag of coffee to leave. And I go to nine different offices to get those signatures and stamps. So that takes an average of two weeks. So when a roaster says, well, the coffee was done milling in August and it's October, what are you doing? Sometimes it's just the way it is. It just doesn't get any easier. And every year, they add another form that you have to do or take away a different form. So last year, we had to have a warrant for our coffee to show that it's in the coffee warehouse. This year there is no warrant. Oh, but this year you have to have a bank statement showing the central government, showing the government coffee board how much money is in your account and did you get paid for the last coffee? Every year something changes, so you just have to roll with it and understand how to produce coffee and how to export it. This is why when you're working with a direct trade partner and they say uh, it's just not ready, coffee's not ready, it is frustrating. You're like, I need that coffee in my roaster in a month, and you're having to put it on a boat, shipment isn't started. To have a direct trade partnership, you have to have trust. To have trust, you have to have a relationship. And a relationship isn't a spreadsheet and an email. It's conversation, it's knowing a person, and it's not just trusting your farmer. It's the farmer trusting you too. Because a farmer cannot know that he's going to be able to sell his coffee. What is he going to do? He's going to pull out his coffee, he's going to find a stop. Or is he going to leave the country and get a job too, flipping burgers and McDonald's? There's no reason that direct trade can't work, but it will not work without trust. So that's the little backdrop of the long-mile story. And I wanted to... I'm going to... That's the abbreviated... And I, I, like I told you, I could talk about this all day. So I'm going to like cut that part short. And really, I want to talk to you about one other topic before I get into the question and answer. And the topic is, and this kind of starts our discussion, it's talking about, I want to talk about when you're pursuing possibility, how do you do that with sustainability? And I know sustainability in the, I come from Burundi where there's so many NGOs in the UN and the World Bank and I just want to vomit when somebody talks about sustainability because for them it means getting a brand new Land Cruiser and being able to drive and have enough fuel to get to their swimming pool. So (laughs) let's throw that sustainability definition aside and instead talk about sustainability for one of the farm, the four and a half thousand families that that we're working with. Sustainability means that every one of our farmers that averages 200 coffee trees, each coffee tree averages less than one kilo of cherries. One kilo of cherries is going to give you about 300 grams or less of green beans. So when you buy a bag of coffee. It is one tree's production for the year for a family. These 200, so if you have 200 bags of coffee, 200, 250 gram bags of coffee, that's the total income of a single family in Burundi for the year. Less the roasters' money, less the baristas pay, less the importers pay, less the exporters pay, less the dry mills pay, less the washing stations pay. What's left is the farmers pay. The average Burundian farmer is making much less than $80 a year, much less than $80 a year. I would say the average Burundian farmer last year made $0 because over 60% of the washing stations weren't able to pay their, their farmers. Why? Because the New York sea price was so low that by the time the washing stations exported their coffee, they had enough money to pay back the bank the loan they had for operational costs, and there was no money left to pay farmers. Long Miles happened to be one of the only companies that was able to pay on time, and one of the only companies that was able to give a premium to the farmers. Now I'm not saying that to blow our own horn, I'm just saying that for sustainability. If you are not paid for a whole year's work, will you do that job next year? It would be a hard sell. We're talking about farmers that have been abused and cheated by these washing stations in in the most part for not only their life, but the life before their father's life and their grandfather's life. There is no reason to be a coffee farmer unless you can have a hope, unless you can have something to trust in. So if you can provide those, that is to me sustainability. So how do we provide hope and trust? Well, we've got, we work with specifically Four Hills at our bouquet washing station and four hills at our hazel washing station. On those four hills there's many sub-hills, so we work with, it's more like 16 hills. But we, we make it down traceability to eight hills total. On those eight hills, we have, like I said, we have four and a half thousand families. How do you make sure that the health, the the, the coffee production, the, the quality is increasing and, and going to be good enough? With four and a half thousand families, it's impossible. So, but... But you can't just let it go. You have to think, what are we going to do? So what we did was, we formed a program called the Coffee Scout Program. So we have an agronomist at each washing station, and each agronomist has 12 coffee scouts. These are youth from the, the eight hills around the station that have graduated from high school, but they can't go to university because they don't have any money. They can't get a job because there are no jobs. And their families have five children each, so there's nothing for them to do. So, we do interviews and we have hundreds of kids apply for these, these 24 jobs. Hundreds of kids are applying. We've lined up queues of, of these youth that are graduated, nothing to do, and they just want to work with us. We hired 24. These 24 go in pairs of two and they split off into each of that eight hills. And each of those two have four families. They're called farmer friends. Those farmer friends get extensive agricultural training on not just coffee, but on food production as well. We are teaching farmers what is just kind of common sense, we thought at first, but we realized there's a, there's an information gap. Because of all the war, the, the genocide that happened in the 90s, the war in the, in the 70s and the 90s up until 2006, has just caused this huge gap in understanding how to even be a farmer. So what we're doing is going back to talking about mulch. How do use what you have to mulch? How to use what you have to... How do you prune your coffee? How do you replant coffee? And what we started this year, where we realized is our biggest initiative now, is how to make an environmental impact. And as a South African, when you haven't seen rain in months, you think this is important. When you're a Burundian and you just want a potato to eat, you could care less if it rains. You just want a potato. So we're trying to change mindset on... Not just the environment, but how this is going to help you today. So what we're doing is we're, we have nurseries with literally 20,000 shade trees per station. So every year we're planting 40,000 shade trees around our washing stations. What we're trying to do is essentially make, make circles of green around our station and we're expanding them year by year. 20,000 trees, 20,000 trees, 20,000 trees. And the idea is to create from our washing stations to the rainforest just this green passageway or green belt, if I can take one carbon tie's uh, terminology. So that we can see not only uh, help for the coffee, but it's going to help the whole environment. We're going to get into that a little bit later when I'm talking to you about, like direct trade. but. Essentially, what we're seeing is that this initiative to have coffee scouts with agronomists and farmer friends has created a catalyst where these families are not only not pulling up their coffee trees, but all of their neighbors are coming in on these meetings. And we're seeing whole communities change the way they produce coffee and the way they live. We have worm farms on each of the hills now. And each of these worm farms are now spawning off, and now other farmers are producing their own worm farms, so they don't have to share all the worm tea. There, we have farmers now irrigating, and we have farmers mulching, we have farmers producing intercropping, not only for the food source and the nitrogen fixing for the coffee, but also for the, the, the mulch and all the other environmental, really, biodiversity that's needed in coffee. So the reason I'm saying all this is not to toot my horn and say, what have we done? Because the reality is, is, the Coffee Scout Program, the Farmer Friend Program, and even the agronomists, those were not my ideas. Those were people that we pulled in and said, we need help. And those people said, we need an agronomist. The agronomist said, I need help. We need scouts. The scouts said, there's too many farmers. Can we just have specific ones? We have farmer friends. The farmer friends said, our neighbors want this. And so they brought in, and two, so that once a week, the farmer friend program is actually a community gathering of training. So how does it happen? It didn't happen with just Ben's grand plan started with, I just want to be a coffee guy. That, that's where it started. I just, I just want to be a coffee guy. I just want to do something with coffee. And then we left. And that leap became finding out, stumbling, falling, getting back up, and figuring out how do we do this, where do we go, and how do we just survive. And that survival turned into we need hope. And that hope became we need a community. That community became trust. And now the trust is realizing the potential of Burundi coffee. And I think at the end of today, we've got some of our COE coffee that we can taste that the vineyard is is having on their brew bar. But it's not just one lot of coffee. It's about looking forward. And now, our 4,500 farmers, we have another 1,000 families that asked to work with us for 2017. Are we going to be able to do it? I, I don't know. We might start even either turning away farmers, or eventually maybe build a third stage. I don't know what we can do because at some point we want to scale. We want to impact the nation. The reality is, is what we're seeing is that people need hope. People need something to believe in, and it's not just it's not long miles. You're not believing in long miles. But we're just providing something that we believe that any other washing station. In and the doors open, and we're trying to help other stations do the same thing. And same as a roaster. We couldn't do Long Miles if, first and foremost, at the very beginning of when we started Long Miles, we didn't sit down with a couple of key roasters in the United States and say, well, what do you need? What do you want? What's going to help you succeed as a roaster? And that was the start of why we started and how we did Long Miles, why we did Microlotting, why we do Traceability, why we focus on quality, and in the way we do. So that's the story of Long Miles. That's, a, that's, my, that's my waving the banner for sustainability, not in the NGO terminology, but in the let's find hope and trust. And I want to turn the corner now and make this more of a, a little bit of a question and answer, but a little bit of a discussion too. So unless there's a specific question about long miles or about sustainability and projects we have, I don't know if anybody has any specific questions on that. Yeah. For the uninitiated,
2: could you explain what, why a washing station is, what what happens at a washing station other than the obvious wash?
1: Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Around the world, every country produces coffee differently. I think if if one of you as a roaster wanted to do a direct trade in, uh, let's say, Guatemala or Costa Rica. You could contact a single farmer in Guatemala and make a relationship, and that farmer is, has his own washing station, his own plantation of coffee. He washes his coffee, and in a lot of these countries, dry mills his coffee and then exports the coffee, or works with an exporter, and exports, and they'll export coffee to Cape Town for you, or maybe with combined shipment. In Burundi, uh, like I've said, we, my wife and I, we have two farms of our own, but these two farms are not big enough for all the coffee that we produce. So what, but, and also we're not there just to have an agribusiness and to produce coffee. We're there to, to actually impact communities. So in, and in fact, we're actually, in Burundi, the, the, the only way you produce coffee is in community. So, there are smallholders, so each of these smallholders, none of them has a pulper. In other words, take the skin off the cherry. So, to export coffee, you need to pulp it, you need to ferment it, you need to dry it, you need to hull it. The farmers don't have the means, the capacity to do that, and cooperatives are only just starting to begin. But the washing station in Burundi is essentially the producer. So they're the one that collect all the cherries and then prepare the coffee to be exported. So as a producer who owns the washing station, I now essentially own the product. So I'm in charge of finding somebody who will buy it, and I'm in charge of making sure it gets to you in quality. So essentially, and that's why we started a washing station versus a dry mill. In some countries, a dry mill owns the coffee. In some countries, it's just a farmer. So that's why we started the washing station in Burundi, because this is the kind of the pivot point for all of the, all of the commodity, then to be able to pivot to where it's going to go and what is the price going to be. So it's where the margin is, it's where the ability to give back to farmers is, it's the ability to be in community. So that's the, in Burundi, that's the washing station, and the owner of the washing station.
3: Yeah.
0: The 4,500
2: farmers and the 1,000 farmers that are, that are coming, are they working from degraded land, or is there conversion of virgin forest that is, that is being used to produce
1: stuff? There is no conversion of, of virgin forest. Uh, the the Kabira forest is on the, the footstep of Hesa washing station, um, and, and also the Bouquet washing station, and that is a protected forest. And so that is, that's, there's actually a a very strict line that's the military protects so that there's no deforestation. Great. (laughs) The rest of the land has been deforested and abused for the last, you know, 60 to 100 years. So I would say that while the soil is amazing potential, it needs a lot of inputs. So these 4,500 families and the additional 1,000 families come from different, varying soil structures. Um, And so one of the things that we do is we actually, before we take on any new farmers and areas, what we'll do is we'll go to an area, we'll do soil testing uh, on that hill and find out what is the soil structure, what's the potential quality for that to be produced out of there with no inputs because usually farmers, uh, on average, I would say uh, zero out of 10,000 are doing anything to their trees. So, the only inputs are going to be what we help them think through, how can you input into your, onto your tree. So, it's, it's very important for us, we don't just, it, it sounds harsh, but we, wouldn't, we won't accept all thousand families. Because there's some hills that we just know aren't going to produce great coffee. And we don't have enough space and production capacity to just take on the whole country's cherries and produce. So we have to be very strict on what cherries come in and from where, and that's why we do a lot of traceability and exactly where the coffee comes from, which part. Yeah.
2: yeah? Why are you so down growth?
1: Why not check funding and growth? We've thought about it. What was the question? question is, why not accelerate growth? Why not expand right now? The idea is to to expand. One of our visions for Long Miles is going deeper versus broader. So we wanna make sure that like right now we could probably open up, get some funding, open up three more washing stations and just take that triangle and just splash across the whole thing make sure we consume all the coffee to produce the best possible quality. I don't think that I have the capacity to go as deep as I want with all of those farmers at one time, can you not bring those skills in? Yeah, I think it's possible. So I've, I've. Bu- do have an obligation to do that? Yeah, I think we do have an obligation to do that. And I'm, we're the way we're looking at it is, how do we do this in a way that's scalable? And I don't want to start scaling and then be like, oh crap! I've spent five years in Burundi, and the last two years have been some of the most treacherous with a coup d'etat, counter-coup, militant action, and now it's kind of a police state where we're under no illusion that I could possibly not be able to fly back into Peru on Friday. Uh, friends of ours just, they just told me, you can't come back. And there's no, not a reason. They're just, you're, you're not on the good list anymore. You're on the na- 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 naughty list, not the nice list. So we have to do smart, and I think you, you bring up a very valid point. We have a formula where we know the farmers in Bouquet and Haza around our stations, their lives are visually as well as graphically better. Our farmers now have, this. in this coming year, we'll all have health care. Our farmers are all getting 45% actual cash, 45% more cash than any other washing station. Our farmers are having um, natural inputs taught to them and kind of seeded into their lives, like the worm farms, uh, mulches, uh, composting from ours. So yes, we are making lives better, and we know we can do more. So now how do we do this more instead of how do we just do it quick? I think that's the question. It's 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 a great question that we're wrestling with, too, because... It's also hard to, for me to come to an investor and say, we need $200,000 to get the next area started. And you may never see that money again. There's not a lot of people lining up to invest into brooming today, realistically. And yet, we have had, we have had people do it. So it's, it's possible. And if you want to do that, you can talk to me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I've got business cards. So, <laughs> But, David, great, great question. And I, and, I don't, and I don't think there's an easy answer, and I think it's ethical. It's just like I'm pushing you ethically to, to stop drinking your push-button coffee. I think it's also it's a flip-around. Like, like I told you from the beginning, I have an unfair advantage being in Veruni. I know roasters. I can talk their language. I know, personally, I know roasters all over the world I, on, a, on just a, a friendship basis. We could, I, if a push comes to shove, we can say, listen, I really got stop stomach coffee. What can you do for me? And they can take my coffee. No other washing station in Burundi has that. It's like a luxury. And I know what the farmers need to make their coffee better, and I know what it's going to take to make sure that there's a longevity in it. These are all unfair advantages and luxuries, so there is a great responsibility with that. So what do we do? And I, think, I think that brings my question kind of back to the kind of the roasters and the industry people here is okay, so I want I want to talk specifically about um, direct trade right because that that leads me into my next question say okay, I'm'm a, I'm a coffee producer. I'm a coffee farmer and a producer of Burundi. I have taken the family, I've taken the risk, I've taken all our money. I've put everything into this to produce coffee. What is your responsibility? as a roaster in South Africa, or an importer, to me as a producer. You have none at this point. There's nobody in this room has any obligation to do anything for me. And in fact, I don't have any obligation to do anything for you. I mean, just if we lay it out on the table, you know, for being harsh. What I want to say is, like, what's, what is the ideal world, and what's the reality of how we can work, make this work? And I'm not talking about long Miles, I'm talking about you as a, as a roasting fraternity, to be able to go forward. The reason I bring this up is because I want before you answer that, just think about that, chew on that. You're not all extroverts who think out loud like I do. There's, there's a very real thing called climate change, alright? If you're in America and you're a Republican, you don't believe it's true. <laughs> Coming from Burundi, it is true because we see it daily. Our weather patterns are changing. GIZ, which is the, it's a German agency, did a report on climate change around the world. And they did a specific one in Burundi on coffee production. They showed us MAP. They showed, all of the, they showed the government coffee board and us as washing station owners. This is where the coffee is growing now, all over here. In 15 years, you will only grow coffee right here. This is not to scare you. This is just so you can prepare now, also, this, this, this report was released just as I was building station, so I knew where to build, but also lined up in the triangle. That triangle is the only place in the country that's going to produce coffee in 15 years. So what do you think that's going to do to people who want Burundi coffee? You think that you will have the opportunity to buy Burundi coffee in 15 years. Now, let's widen that to Tanzania, to Rwanda, to the Congo. Well, we'll leave the Congo alone. Um, to Uganda, to Kenya, what do you think is happening to coffee production as a whole? And specifically talking about specialty coffee, is it? You, I would you would think there are hundreds, uh, from what I understand, hundreds of new coffee roasters in South Africa over the last couple of years. And all of the all of you roasters do not want to keep roasting Santos. And at the same Colombian and the same Ugandan coffee every day. I mean, I I don't know how many <laughs> coffee shops I visited when I was here in in Bur- or in Burundi from in South Africa when the the coup happened. My wife we we're gonna have a baby, so we were here for six months. So I visited a lot of different uh, coffee shops, and I couldn't believe how many roasters were serving the exact same coffee, just roasted a little different or just in a different bag. No, and it's not your own fault. I'm just saying. What do you think is going to happen when climate change squeezes total production of coffee, and specialty coffees? are not actually going to. There's not going to be a lot more specialty coffee produced in the world, and yet there's hundreds more in South Africa. How many coffee roasters in the United States and Europe do you think there are wanting that coffee? The specialty coffee is shrinking, the roasters are growing, and. There are coffee drinkers around the world who are becoming more and more discerning. They're like, actually, I don't want a Keurig, I don't want a Nescafe, I want, and I and I don't want just this, just this off-the-shelf, you know, breakfast blend, dark roasted, oily rubbish. I want a good cup of coffee, and where are you going to find it? So, swing back to that. Actually, well, no, that's rhetorical. But so, swing back to you as a roaster or an importer or whatever your role is or a coffee shop. Like what do you think what do you think your role to make sure that you have direct trade and make sure you have access to specialty coffee. What would you like it to look like and what do you think you can make it look like? That's a big broad question. But we're not we're not gonna get specifics today. So what do you think your role is? More no,
0: that's another question oh, you. Anyway. <laughs> what do you cost need? Because I'm very happy to and done this so but really. so this is what we need for the next 18 months. <laughs> but what do we need to do to make sure that in 18 months time, be and talk about the next 18 months
1: and the next 18 months? I'll answer your question after I hear from my blog. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to ask. What do you want from us
2: in, in terms of um, treating feeling eating in this industry? Your word is trust. I go away, i lovely chat educated me and he was holding his trust. However, how do we trust you? It's a two-way street. Yep. And, and in Africa, the, um, um, the vagaries of, of life, you just mentioned, you might not be like that here. Um, you have with your washing station, you a long mile you can't produce because of real reasons. Yep. You can't survive you. Yeah, that's uh, Africa. It is also a um, friend that's mentioned that a tall tree in Africa tends to be cut.
1: Absolutely. Where's your uh, progression mm-hmm. there? The, yep. The, this is, you're probably not surprised that you're not the first person that's asking that. Sure. And one of our first roasters um, that, that we started working with back then 2013 from the states and he's become a great friend. So first and foremost, I would say that not, not the trust. Let's see the trust piece. How do you how do you gain trust? How, can I stand on this and fall down and we catch, you catch know, the Trust fall. If you do like a good team building activity, so how do you gain trust? It's time. How else? Consistency. It's consistency. Quality. It's quality. You do good. Educating. How about trust? Is when how about when things go bad? Do you think in in your I don't know who's married here, but in marriages, do things always just I mean, like mine, do they just go smooth always? <laughs> <laughs> That's the
2: trust you. Yeah. <laughs>
1: no, you're gonna you're gonna fight. You're gonna screw up. I'm gonna not be able to give you what you want. Then what do you
2: do? Then maybe the trust starts somewhere else. Yeah, maybe it starts somewhere else. Maybe maybe it starts with us those of us who are calling ourselves speciality who aren't delivering to the public of speciality. So we're not able to charge enough for our copies. So we're not making a big enough profit. So that we're not buying good enough copies so that we can't afford the direct trade. And I think that trust it, it's very it, it's very short sighted to look backwards to your supplier on the trust. We need to look forward to our communities, what we serve it. And if we are going to serve burnt, we deserve to be undercharging for coffee. And as long as we're undercharging for coffee, all we can afford to buy is more Santos. And we think is gets cheaper next year, and it's not going to get cheaper next year, it's going to be more expensive. It's going to be on short supply. And the model needs to change. We need to deliver real coffee, better coffees to our consumers to justify our price. I'm very concerned. I've just spent a month in the States, and the coffee that I'm selling for $1.90 equivalent, they're selling for $4.50. But it's not cheaper to make the coffee here. Don't be deluded. Don't be deluded in productivity and rent and anything else. You take it back to cost per cup. Yes, a rental of, of 25,000 Rand here will be $27,000. dollars there, 450000 rand a month. I looked at it. It's expensive. But when you take it to the number of cups served per rand per square meter it's the same thing. But we under serving our like I
1: think that's a great that's a great comment, David. Does trust isn't just between long miles and you as a roster? Is there have you developed that trust with your with the your consumer? <clears throat> Maybe one of the questions wanted to ask is
0: what are what do we stand for? Um, that helps determine what our values are and in determines ultimately you're not about copy. What I see, you about people. Um, and that then, what we stand for in determines of visual income a value system, that value system then drives why we do business and want
2: to trade coffee, whether you're a barista or a roaster, or a producer such as yourself. <coughs> that then underlines as to where the money goes and what we able to the trade in amount of
1: money. I think what you're, what you're both talking about is character, then <laughs> it comes down to, what are you about? <laughs> it, it, we, we say we're specialty coffee, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to call out anybody's coffee, but I had one specific coffee three different times, and I'm like, this is not specialty coffee. It was three different prices. It was three, it was, it was the same bad African coffee. And I love African coffee. So your character, how you're presenting it to the public is it's critical it's critical so it then so then it, it does swing back to again then okay and I can't remember your, the second part of your question is like the, you know the trust and then how you know how can I fulfill it essentially you know it comes back to um, and, and also how do I mitigate risk then you're asking that you know and, and I think that's what as a roaster, you have to think of the same thing. How do I mitigate risk? How do I bring in 200 rand a kilo of green? How do I mitigate that risk <coughs> when people don't want to spend the equivalent of $4.90 a cup of <coughs> You know, I'm, You know, I was just in the States over in July, and that was it. You know, you order a cup of coffee. You know, it's like... it's not, And I'm not, I'm not talking Starbucks. I'm talking, like, really specialty coffees, and it's... It's, you know, $4 was the average need for a cup of coffee, and I'm not talking New York either. This is the Midwest, where everything is. Everybody's very, you know, what are we spending our money on? This is a very conservative plan. $4 a cup. No, nobody blinks an eye. So it does beg the question of how much are you charging per cup of coffee? You cannot, when I was here, I was helping some people buy green coffee, and the I was sourcing coffee, and, and I was like, oh, this is some great coffee. That, and I, the pushback was, well, as long as it's 38 rand a kilo or less, we can buy it. I'm like, well, let's just throw out everything I've done for you, and here's the offer list from that everybody else is buying from. because You do not need me to help you, because the only option you have is what's called commodity or commodity premium, which is a very fancy way to say my undergrads. <laughs> I'm quite... I mean, I hate to say it like that, but it's just, I sell, I have a range of coffees. The top is this really wonderful micro-lots. Underneath that is specialty, but it's not quite, it's not 86+, plus, but it's still specialty. Underneath that is commodity premium. Underneath commodity premium is TT, and underneath TT is the floor sweepings and the triage, which also has a home. So literally, we have some great stories about that. Um, so, if you are buying the commodity premium, I would say you are in South Africa as a well. whole, and I would say that's when you're spending a little bit more money. No, probably yes. Yeah, most of you are buying commodity. Just, I mean, just, just, and you don't have to be an expert in that. I told you I got this Q certificate. You don't need a Q certificate. All you have to do is drink a cup. You just drink a cup of coffee and you know when it's, you can tell right away whether you're drinking TT or A2, or if it's an A1, but just not super bright, or if this is a fresh crop micro lot. You do not have to be an expert to know this. And then now let's translate that back to you as a roaster. You will have to pay for that. There is no way around it. I was talking to, and I, I hate to bring it up make it all about the financial side of things, is, but there are roasters around the world who want this slice of specialty pie. And there's no reason why anybody's going to do you any favors in South Africa to get you that specialty pie. Because Australia is dying for it. United States can't get enough of it. And Europe is on the hugest increase of specialty coffee you've ever dreamed of. I mean, I, it just blows my mind the demand for specialty coffee on that rise in Europe. So now, come back to you as a roaster. What are you going to do to guarantee that you can get direct trade coffee? We talked about trust. We talked about how you. Uh, we talked about um, commitment to your customer. We talked about uh, your, um, uh, your 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 character. What else can we do? How are you going to guarantee that you're going to have specialty coffee? What's that? You're gonna have to pay for it, that is. That's one thing, but as as a, as a roaster in Cape Town, you have a lot on your plate. You got roast, you got one staff, and one barista, or five baristas, and you gotta order muffins on Tuesday, and, oh, and then the muffins, Monday didn't sell, what am I do, and then, and then the, the roaster's broken, and the only repair guy is he's in popo, and you're like, wow. Ah. So you do, you know, so yes, we have to pay for. It. How are you going to get it? How do you get? How do you get? How do you? How do you use a roaster? How do you find specialty coffee? Now, I'm not even talking about direct trade at this point. So how do you find? How do you find a special bean in South Africa? This is this is for my education. I just well, want to know how do you find I a special bean? <laughs> bean? <laughs> Grant's like oh, I've <laughs> <so laughs> got this You So you gotta find like a green bar.
0: That's the lost thing. Do, do, you, do you find spot? Warren, no. do you find any you spot, find good, good quality spot? spot? You have to get all. You have to. For me, you have to plan eight to nine to ten months ahead. That's what you have to do. You want, if you want a good Ethiopian next year, you start so buying find this year. because there is, to me, so I've maybe got a few there are nice no specialty. That's why people like me have been forced to go direct. Okay. That's why I found it four years. That's
1: <laughs> It was in the stars. <laughs> okay, so outside of Warren happened to like just the story between Warren and I, and why the vineyard has well, Miles copies one of, one of Warren's clients, one of his buyers was was essentially my uh, good friend of mine, and we were coming and staying with them in Cape Town, and he's like, "Oh, Warren, my my, my, my buddy here is he's from Burundi, and you got to meet him." And Warren's like, "Okay," and like we happened to meet on the couch, and we. Shared a cup of coffee and we talked probably for too long. Everybody else was bored, and you know that was just how does how you know that's relationships. It's networking. How how else do you find special coffee, specialty coffee? I a four by
0: four on a session. Yeah, there is that.
1: I've, I've known a guy that's done that. I mean, oh, so on, I mean, there's other there's other roasters in the room. How, how do you maybe maybe you don't buy specialty coffee and so you're feeling a little nervous. But like, how do you Buy where do you buy specialty coffee? Do you just? I mean, I mean, we all know the three people who bring in coffee. I mean, do do they get it for you? I, I'm I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I just I don't I just don't know. This not you saying? I
2: think there are a lot of there are a lot of models and relationships. A, lot of models, yeah. a great one, but it's hard yep. to establish a relationship on a lot of confidence It's huge. You, you have yeah. For us, it was a matter of finding not so much brokers but more matchmakers. Okay. And Pound uh, 2 in the UK did a great job for us. Okay. And they connected us with, with farmers. Rather than sitting in the firewall between us, they no, had okay. taken care of logistics and initial capping an initial of the truck, and initial closing, and tried in both directions. Yep. And they take a premium for that. we have happy with and,
1: and that's the truth. So, that's exactly what you have to do. You have to go out, out the and, and I And I would. And I would say that what David just I don't know if you heard David, but I would say that this is probably the best model. Like M um, is is kind of working against myself here, but I would say this is the best model that if I was a roaster, this is exactly how I would do it. If I'm a roaster, I, I cannot afford to fly to Burundi. I cannot afford to fly then to Kenya, then to Guatemala, and then to Costa Rica, and then Brazil. I mean, to do one of those trips every couple of years is is good. You're not going to be able to do that. I try to do one again. I don't it. Exactly. And it's not just, it could be the finance, but it probably is just the time. Literally, who's going to order the muffins on Tuesday? You know? So, and you've got other obligations. You have family. You've got, you know, you've got to run the kids to school and whatever it might be. You're not going to get to origin. Some of our, some of the most dedicated direct trade relationships we have, they dedicate themselves to going to every one of their, Producers every year. Those people don't have a life. I mean, their life is just traveling, and their their whole job is roaster to producer relations, and that's a whole job in this company. That's spectacular. But I, as if I was starting a business, I could never do that. I could never imagine doing that. You know, to be honest, I don't think you need to do that. What you need to do is I. I think this is one great example that David brought. Is, you kinda, you need to find the matchmaker. You need to find who... I can't go to Perundi. I can't go to Guatemala. So who can get me that... Who, who knows those people? could set up that relationship? Make sure that I don't have time to even cut 27 coffees from Guatemala. I, I want them to say, these are the best coffees from Guatemala. And then you build that trust with your that connector, that matchmaker. And they've got a great relationship with a uh, farmer in Guatemala. I would say that this is one model that works. And I would say that it's probably one of the better models in specialty coffee. Now, even this, though, takes some effort on your part. What kind of effort you have to take? You have to say that you want more than spot coffee. You want to start finding out, you have to do some research of who's doing this. You gotta make phone calls, you gotta make emails, you have to follow up, you have to meet the people. You have to develop that trust that you're not getting past crop, and they're saying it's just good stuff. This is This is important, you still have to build trust just like David, what David said is not like taking out trust out of the factor. It's just now there's layers of trust that you're developing, which is even harder. All right, how else? Oh, so this is one method.
2: Yeah. So, is that not the responsibility of the current reporters in the industry? <laughs> for every roast to go out and go and try and find a new international relationship where there are really people here who are saying we do this? Should, we, they should then do this. Yep.
1: Yep. Well, I'm, I don't, I think I need to be politically correct in some ways. I'd <laughs> <That'd> be not politically correct. Yeah, David, David is it,
2: not, w- not, not going to work for one reason. Because the people in this room are demanding cheap coffee. And those importers are listening to you and getting you cheaper and cheaper and cheaper coffee. And that's coming at expensive quality. It's coming at expensive relationship. It means, fuck you, Thank you Grower. You, you want to give us your good stuff. Forget about it. That's not what we can supply you. We'll supply you when you've got crap in the concert to anyone else. And that's what you guys are ordering, and that's what you guys are demanding. But if you're going to go somewhere else and order from another supplier, why not go straight to your local importer and say, I'm prepared to buy, here's 10 other I'm prepared to buy. Because they're saying that they will cost more than 60 rand a kilo. We don't understand that kind of business. We don't want to get involved in that business. We're going to be stuck with a cut. And also, it hasn't generally been available too often. Specialty copies. And when they claim yeah, they're doing the it, two years really in South Africa that the roasters are using the term and copies becoming available. Yeah. Two roasters. I'm um, so. I'm and also not convinced. Traditional traders reluctant to do it. I'm also not convinced they got the expertise. They don't yeah. know the difference no. between yeah. a, a floor sweeping and a speciality lot. Well, well, yeah. And I would, and, and, and I would, specialty. I would jump
1: in here and say, and the biggest reason is, <coughs> is. Because I think that some of them have tried. And they've sat on coffee yeah. that, that roasters have said, yeah, I will buy it. Just bring it in and I will buy this. They bring it in. And I know that I, cause I've, I've had a conversation with some of them. They, they brought in coffee. It's expensive coffee. It cost them almost 100 grand kilo. <laughs> and it sat for a year. They're like, we can't take that position. And which time it became 40 grand. Kilo? And then, because nobody's going to buy it, a year-old coffee, then it's 40. they lost 60 grand a kilo. The reason why the traditional importers, they just can't do it. It's not their business model. I think that if you have a good relationship with them, you can find a way, and they can throw some coffee on there. And then if you work hard and make a plan, it could work.
2: But there is a problem. And the problem is $1.90, 25 grand cups of coffee. As long as we can't carry on with that, you can't afford to buy the good coffee. They can't afford to supply you.
1: Still need for to supply How much are you selling your coffee for? They, you, your your model actually. will fail when you ask for ten bags of coffee and then four bags in. You're like, ooh, and nobody's buying this because we've got our house blend, and it costs you fifteen rand a cup, or you can have our single origin awesome coffee, and it's you know, and it's costing you forty rand a cup, but everybody tries it once and they never try it again. Because they're like, yeah, but I'll just go for the fifteen grand cup. Yes, sir. And then you should be a cynic. It be yes. a cynic.
2: The, uh, the problem is you have to have a market that appreciates it, really.
1: mm-hmm. and that cup, I should imagine, is pretty small. Isn't it? That and that's the other question. I don't know.
2: Not just of appreciation; we have to afford that.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah, uh, appreciation. Then why the hell
1: are you in speciality cup? Yeah. So, so David's David's question is essentially: if you're in specialty coffee, one of the response isn't one of the responsibilities for everyone in this room to help propagate the desire to understand coffee and to love it. Because Every time we sell
2: a, great, a cup of non-specialty coffee in our so-called specialty stores, we line the consumer. And the consumer goes, "I might as well buy a ten grand coffee and." What they call
1: dungeon donuts just enter the
2: market because they
1: know they can Yep. They can't because that's what customers want. Essentially, the next, I think that leads us to the next question is, what are you doing in your roasteries and cafes? How many of you actually have a cafe? There's a few. What are you doing in your cafe? And I hate the word to educate your client because I don't believe in that. But for lack of Time to explain what it is. How do you how do you show what a great cup of coffee is? Do you need to, or do you just serve better coffee? If that takes
2: time in the relationships. We were both educators, um, and and um, wine was our passion. And called loose when a friend of Dion said to me,
0: but Dion, if you love wine, do you love coffee? You are a city, whatever. So we drive through to Truth every month to get our fresh coffee. And we're from Worcester. But remember, we've got the old lady that comes in and said, I do these
1: jackets. I do And So I must get her first on a filter base. Then I will say, okay, let's try a flat white. You know, we we'll make
0: a little nice, that's an art for you, so we still way back from the guys in town, in Cape
1: Town. So we educate coffee. Yes, and, and I love that you bring it personal. Uh, for, for me, and if I could if I bring it into my own home, it's, it's when I met Christy. She was drinking, we, we, you know, we would go hang out at coffee shops when we were in the United States going to college, but she was drinking, you know, hot chocolate. And then I, I convinced her to throw espresso in it and, frothy mocha, whipped cream, chocolate syrup. But there's been a 15-year progress, and now she's drinking just more of black coffee. Don't put any sugar milk in it, please. Now, you might not have 15 years with each customer, but you might, you know? And so, it's it is a, again, I think it goes back to your relationship, to build trust, and your commitment not to serve them crap.
0: I think, to me, Dave's done this and we've done it as well. Serve so a high-quality coffee. Do it. We've done it here. We've done it at Brayton. I don't run the cafe, so I done it all the muffins. <laughs> and, you know, the funny thing is that people do buy. They do. I mean, you put a 58-grand cup of coffee on there, and you think, no, going to buy it. You sell out. Yeah.
3: You know, we, 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 we took a
0: massive risk this year, and I'm, 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 now I'm just seeing it. Of ordering 90 plus coffees. Yes, we haven't. It not walked out the door and hasn't sold brilliantly, but I am on my last bag and I only got 15 kg there. It's taken me a year to sell 60 kgs, And you know what? I wasn't going to order it again, but I am going to order it again because I don't care if it takes me a year to sell 60 kg. A day. That's what we should be doing in the specialty industry. Mm-hmm. We should be saying, let's sell a 58 gram cup of coffee. If they don't order it, it's to, too tough shit. But don't tell everybody that your rand cup of coffee and your 25 rand of coffee and your 35 rand of coffee is the same coffee, like Dave said. And Dave was the first person to do it in this country, and I said, that's a joke. 35 rand espresso, I remember you're doing it on the stay-up machine. That's what we need to do. We mustn't complain about the industry. And that's what the wine industry did. The wine industry said, what do we got? We've got K-W-B, we've got S-S-K, that's what we had. All wine was made by the same thing. How many people know about Douglas Green? Douglas Green is the co of wine. It's not a good wine. How many people go out and buy it? But everybody knows it. And why? why? Because David's drink 10 years ago was the de facto standard. Or, or Chateau Libertas was the de facto standard. How many people in this room buy Chateau Libertas today? But you all started drinking it. And that's what, it takes 10, 15 years. It takes 10, 15 years. It doesn't happen have have an overnight. And the only way to do it is to have an option. The first time you taste... A proper Bordeaux blend, and then you go back to Chateau Libertage, you go, What was I thinking? Is it the same mouth? Is this the same mouth that I drank Chateau Libertas with that appreciates the border? And the only way you appreciate it is if you have the border. I mean, I'll tell you that the Nice Place de Kisi is the, one of the best copies I've ever had in my life. It's taken me two weeks to go back to drink my drinking specialty grade after that. Except for the one by asking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, once you've done, I mean, you've done the COE, to me, I think it's. it's I mean, it's ridiculously cheap. We're selling it for 450 grams a kilogram. We cannot sell it. We cannot sell it. It's ridiculously cheap. What is the coffee? Sell? Your, people are selling it for 250 grams in the States.
1: 450 grams the same coffee. It's, I'm going to circle the conversation back around again then no. to how do you leverage now great coffee? There's a responsibility to serve better coffee. I think we can agree to that. Like, you want to serve better coffee. I don't think the person in here is like, actually, i really like to serve just burnt santos. It's really my bread and butter. No, you want to serve better coffee. You would love to have direct trade relationships, but you're, you're, you're not, not right away. It's going to take time, and you can slowly develop those. I think having the vineyard have Christy and I come in, now is just like a unique opportunity for you can meet one producer. Chances are you may never need another coffee producer in your life. Sorry, but yeah. why are layers of mediocrity gonna make it better? Why are layers of mediocrity? Yeah. So yeah. let's
2: build mediocrity with a little bit
1: no. less mediocre. Okay. can and no. you can't. No, you you can't. can't. You've got to stop compromising. It's the only way? Yep. And that's and that's what's and that's why I'm bringing back to the conversation back to what are you gonna do? So for a long while, I'm gonna go back to your question, sir. So how are how can I trust you? Well, I'll tell you why, because we started in 2013, and from 2013 to 2016, we had put everything we had, everything we could borrow, beg, and not steal, but take, to put back into Long Miles. Why? You know, I, I was looking at it the other day, and I, and I looked through the spreadsheets, and I was like, in the, in the four coffee seasons we produced coffee, we've taken 3 months' salary, and they weren't the last three months. <laughs> Why? Because our commitment is to our relationships, to our farmers, first. But it began with my relationship to the roasters who sat down with me and said, I believe in you, Ben, I believe in your vision, your dream. And I'm gonna buy your coffee. And I said, and I'm gonna make it better every year. It has and it has got better. Mm-hmm. And it got better from 2013 to 14, 14 to 15 to 15 now to this next Crop 16, gotten better. Why? Because we're putting everything we have, not just personally, but anything we can get financially, back into making quality steps increase every year. Why is that? Because I know the specialty coffee is shrinking, and if we don't push forward, we're going to just get worse. Our coffee will get worse if we do not do something to make it better. That's just reality. The climate change, the soil, the inputs. It will get worse. So we are making inputs to make it better. So my commitment to the roasters is it's going to get better. This is why. And we can talk to you what we've done and why it's gotten better, and you can taste the better. The result is, these roasters are buying more and more coffee. How do you, as a roaster, make sure you can leverage getting some of that coffee, not from Long Miles, but from anyone? What is your commitment going to be? How is your, how is you, as a, as a, what can you do as a roaster to make sure you get better coffee? So those are the thoughts I want to close with and let you just think about and challenge you to kind of take with you into the future. And I hope that the next time I visit each your coffee shops, that we won't be just drinking burnt Santos, but and I'm sorry for my Brazilian friends, but <laughs> but that we are having something unique, special and really tasty, and at a price that's giving back to the farmer what they deserve So thank you for coming in today. I appreciate it. time. <laughs> 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 uh, at uh, the
0: back, if you start off with a bit, then there's no Santos in that box. We've got the COE. Uh, for those who were yesterday, this is a different roast. I wasn't really... We've been playing to try you off the and the roast. So there's only three litres there. Um, so, so it's the ones on the left with the legato sign. friends at legato lent me their, their thermopods. Um, so if you want to try the cereal there. Oh, just before I, was, I just want to say a big thank you to the vineyard. Um, they, they've put the ball for being in half this uh, flight out here. And I'm really hoping that this is the first of many producers. Yeah. Oh, okay. um, and I want to thank the
3: Winner team they've been phenomenal. Uh, no, no, no. Thank you. Thank you. Thank
0: you so, that is another episode of Coffee Bromance, episode 17. Kath, Zane, and I will record other episodes when we have time. This is an unsponsored podcast, and therefore, it has to be done when we have time. Thank you for those who have listened and those spreading the word. Stay tuned in. We
3: will post more, but not as regularly as we were. Thanks. Bye-bye.